Welcome to the Health Trip Podcast. My name is Jill Foos. I'm a functional medicine and integrative nutrition health coach. I created this podcast to bring you along as we travel down intriguing science-packed roads, debunking old medical paradigms and perusing new innovative therapies and modalities with the finest functional medicine doctors, practitioners, and like-minded biohackers while living our best life. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode on the Health Trip Podcast. Have you ever wanted to ask your primary care physician or your OBGYN certain questions about your vagina or your sexual health and just sort of bailed out? Or maybe you did ask the questions only to be told it was in your head or they just dismissed you altogether. So truly, that's a story I hear all the time with my women clients. So today I am having my very first AMA, Ask Me Anything episode, and I have invited a very special guest on who is super outspoken and funny, and we are going to dive deep into some of the questions that my community sent me. So if you're out there listening and you were one of those people who sent me a question, I super appreciate that. Really great questions, by the way. Dr. Kelly Casperson is a board-certified urologist practicing in Washington State. She's an author, sex educator, and top international podcaster whose mission is empowering women to live their best love lives. Kelly had her life changed by a patient with low desire and identified the need for better resources and education on topics like sexual health, intimacy, hormones, neuroscience, and the science of desire. She combines education, humor, and candor in her podcast, You Are Not Broken, where she dismantles the myths women have learned and normalizes healthy, enjoyable sex worth desiring. An engaging and humorous storyteller, she is a nationally known speaker and is known for being approachable, making people comfortable with these often uncomfortable topics, and changing lives in the bedroom and out with her practical, useful tips. She has also released her book titled, You Are Not Broken. Just a quick podcast medical disclaimer, by listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical advice or for the making of any lifestyle changes to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any of my guests on my podcast. So sit back and enjoy the ride with Dr. Kelly Casperson. Hi, Dr. Casperson. Welcome to the Health Trip Podcast. I'm so excited to have you here today. Thanks for having me. So before we dive into all these awesome questions that my community has contributed to my first ever AMA or Ask Me Anything episode, um, I wanted to just ask you about your background. You know, how did you end up in this space of women's sexual health and, and sex ed? Yeah, thanks for asking. I wasn't I wasn't born this way. I was actually raised Catholic and uh became a surgeon. And about seven years in, you know, you and your listeners will know this. Like seven years in, that seven-year itch is real, right? And you start getting good at your job and you start being kind of bored and you start being like, oh my gosh, is this what I'm gonna do till like, you know, I'm six feet under? And it was just ripe for the universe to like strike lightning in my brain and and change my trajectory. So I actually had a patient who I was very bonded with. This wasn't somebody who came in for the first time and told me about her sexless marriage. This was somebody I deeply cared about. And she 
basically told me about, you know, her sexual function, dysfunction, lack of function, and all the things that I had been told in my training kind of bubbled up of like, women are difficult, women are complicated, we're never going to understand them. Don't worry, the gynecologists are taking care of the people. Um, is it true that we don't know anything about them? And so all this kind of came up and I was like, went on a fact-finding mission, basically. And it turns out we know a lot. And mm. it just percolate through to the mainstream knowledge base, you know, and we're working every single day against societal expectations and what Hollywood says that romance is supposed to be like and sex is supposed <laughs> to be like. So I started the podcast about three years ago because I realized with with everything I knew now, I couldn't just see people in clinic and and make a difference that I want. Like we've got a lot of work to do and I can't do that one-on-one. -on -one. It's nice. But I can't reach everybody, right? And so right. I started a podcast about three years ago, wrote the book last year, did the TED Talk two weeks ago, um, really just saying, I've got to reach the world because yeah. it's, it, there's too much work to do. But yeah, that was it. Lightning struck my brain at a, at a seven-year itch because of somebody I deeply cared about. By the way, congratulations on your TEDx. I follow you. So I was there while you were prepping for it. I, I felt like I was right alongside of you. Obviously I wasn't, but um, what an amazing opportunity and, and, and gift to share all your knowledge. Thank you. Yeah. It's like the Olympics of public speaking. Yeah. Like it yeah. is legit. You can't just like show up and be like, I'm here. Like, yeah, you know, right. to, to like realize what actually goes behind creating 12 minutes of something right. um, was a really fun experience. Yeah. And the name of your podcast and your book are the same. Uh, You're not broken. Correct. Yep. Yeah. I just kept telling women, you know, once I started knowing a lot about sexuality and then, you know, asking women about sexuality, they start coming in and telling me like, I don't have a, I don't have an orgasm with vaginal you know, penis penetration. Oh, you're not broken. That's normal. No, most people right. don't. Uh, I've never had an orgasm before. You're not broken. A lot of women haven't. Right. Uh, I have pain. I have pain with sex you're amongst a huge company. It's very yep. common. You're, you're not broken because women, I think of it like when I go to the dentist and like, there's something with my, I feel like it's a big personality flaw. And I feel like this is what people think about sexuality too. Like it's a personality flaw. You were born broken. You're the anomaly mm -hmm. and like, don't ever tell anybody about that. Right. And then realizing like, no, 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 these are really common and they're more common because of our lack of knowledge. Right. Right. Like the best way to keep people, you know, in shame and from seeking help is basically like never talk about it, make them feel totally alone and isolated. Don't teach the doctors how to help these people. Right. right. Like all this stuff of like, it's not going to change unless we start talking about it. Absolutely. And that's a great segue into the first question that a woman um, messaged me. This is her question. I'm a menopausal woman and I struggle to have a cervical orgasm and rely on my vibrator during sex to help me have a clitoral orgasm. Why am I struggling so much when I never used to before? Good question. So the most common, uh, or the organ of orgasm, just to back up again, this is lack of knowledge, right? Uh, is the clitoris and the clitoris surrounds the vulva on the kind of outer side of the vagina, it's actually more rare to have a woman who has clit, uh, who has cervical orgasms, this vagus nerve stimulation, right? And so what she, what I think she's saying is, I used to have orgasms this way, now I uh, now I have orgasms yeah. this way, but there's a lot of kind of underlying judgment that she's having about there being the right way or longing for and missing what she used to have, mm. right? Yeah. Just realizing, realizing the labeling that our brain puts upon, like it used to be this and now it's this, and I, this is how I feel about it. Um, nothing wrong with 
clitoral orgasms. Nothing wrong with using a vibrator. Um, all of that, right? It's our judgment of those things mm. that creates our, our suffering. Now, that said, our bodies change as we age. Might be a hormonal thing, especially if she's not using any hormones post-menopause, right? Or just her body changing and saying, hey, this is how this is what I how I can orgasm now. Kind of like, you know, I used to be able to do double black diamonds skiing. <laughs> now I'm like, dude, give me a give me a groomer blue and I am happy. Yeah. But it's still a great way to ski. Lots of people are happy with right. groomer blue, right? But if I say like, oh, I just I always the double like it's the it's the added yep. burden of like how it used to be and longing for the past where the suffering comes in. And I would say I would suggest the suffering is optional. Now, if she truly wants to explore going back to trying to get her back on the double black diamonds, right? She might need to explore other techniques, a, a longer set of arousal up front. Maybe hormones would do it for her, possibly a sex therapist to help her process the grief over the change mm. in her body. Uh, so many different things there. Is using a vibrator to have a clitoral orgasm with a partner like, does that ever get to be too much? Do, do you ever like do damage to your nerve endings? Nope. Hmm. You can't, uh, you can't do damage with a vibrator and you can't get addicted to the vibrator. That's the other question. Can you get addicted? Now I can walk to work every morning, but like, it takes a long time. I'm kind of sore and I don't want to spend that much of my day walking to work. So I take a car. Am I addicted hmm. to using my car? No. Hmm. Is it more efficient? Right? Yes, Absolutely. Right. So it's like, we're just using technology to improve our lives. Um, only 30% of women will have an orgasm by putting a penis in their vagina. And that is usually because it includes clitoral stimulation. So there's this big stigma around vibrators because we think that the penis should be able to do all this work for us. Yeah. When in fact, it's really not a great optimal tool. And the other thing I tell people is like, you know, we have technology everywhere in our life now. Like I have an electric toothbrush and a water pick, right? right. Like, could I right. go, could I go take a branch off of a tree and brush my teeth like they used to do? Right. Yeah, but it might not be as a good or effective, right? And so it's really this interesting shame of technology in literally one piece of our life when we don't eschew technology anywhere else. Hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Great analogies, by the way. What about the pelvic floor strength? Does that have anything to do with the loss of being able to have um, a cervical orgasm? Yeah, so an orgasm really is pelvic floor contractions, right? Rhythmic pelvic floor contractions at the rate of one contraction every, what is it? 0.8 seconds or something like that. Like it's literally, mm -hmm. they, this has been researched. Um, the stronger your pelvic floor is, and I don't mean strong, like tight, like painful, like pathologic, but I mean, strong, like functional and, yeah. you know, able to respond. So the stronger it is, the more uh, strong or intense your orgasms can be because an orgasm is a pelvic floor contraction. Um, and there's lots of data on that, you know, improving your pelvic floor muscles can improve your orgasm experience and things like that. I have not seen directly the cervical orgasm with pelvic floor strength. Mm. Um, but to me, I'm like, see a pelvic floor physical therapist. You know, if it, going back right. to that woman's question, right? Like, right. are they absolutely going to be able to help you? I don't know, but they can make sure that, you know, you have good conscious control of your pelvic floor, that it's strong, that, you know, you're, you're not having a, a dysfunction. Maybe you, you've got some hip impingement, like all these things that happen in our pelvis that can affect right. the function of the pelvis. Right. What about the O shot? You know, there's all these 
anti-aging and biohacking ways we can do different things to our body. And um, I actually had the O shot maybe twice. It did nothing but cause me pain. It was yeah, really and uncomfortable. Take, and take a lot of your money. And a lot of money, right? You know, I tell people, I'm like, listen, it's a very expensive way to get rid of your money. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. It's investigational. The national guidelines say, and this is what's so important, right? Is women don't know. And so they're, and I don't blame the women. They're just looking for help. Right. Yeah, yeah. And they're so afraid of hormones or they're so afraid of vibrators. Like they're so afraid of all these good things that they do stuff like put needles in their clitoris. Right. And so to me, I'm like, it's always about education, education, yeah. education. And then they tend to realize like, and here's the other thing about the O-shot. First of all, national guidelines say under investigational use only should be part of a clinical trial. If you're going to do it, mm. all the studies on the O-shot are sponsored by the people who have proprietary, you know, they own the O-shot company. Um, so you're going to get some biased in that research right now. What I've found in the women I talk to is I say, what's your goal with the O-shot? Number one, they don't know, right? Or number two, they're like, I want more desire. And I'm like, well, let me tell you that putting platelets in your clitoris is not where desire comes from. Desire is a brain thing, mm -hmm. right? And so to me, I'm like, be very clear about what your goals are with putting platelet-rich plasma in your clitoris because a lot mm -hmm. of women don't know. They don't right. understand the clitoris is for orgasm for pleasure, but right. it really doesn't have anything to do with the desire in and of itself. Exactly. So I just, you know, I, I, I'm on repeat. I'm sorry, but it's like education, education for women yeah. to be like, oh no, that's not okay. Yeah. Oh, that's not going to make you want to have sex more. Probably. Yeah. The other yeah. thing about sex is the placebo works a ton in the studies, right? So if I take a needle and I put it in your clitoris and I tell you, it's going to increase your desire and make you want to have sex more, it likely will and right. 30-40% of the time because the power of the placebo in sexual function is you give a man a sugar pill and tell him it's going to improve his erection, it will about 40% mm -hmm. of the time. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you know, that's, that's really... Yeah, that's really interesting you say that because that was not my experience with the O-Shot. I did not go home and want to have sex at all. It was... It did not have that effect on me. But when the functional medicine doctor who I got it from was explaining it to me, she did say most of my clients go home and they're ready to go. And I was, I was on the other end of that spectrum. Yeah. 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 So I have another question for you, um, about hormone. I, I really want to talk to you about hormones because that is such a huge topic of conversation with my um, clients, but this is a question that came in that will lead us down that path. I'm a 57-year-old menopausal postmenopausal woman. I went through menopause 11 years ago and wanted to go through menopause naturally. I suffered from night sweats for 10 years. My doctor never talked to me about hormone replacement therapy, and I was under the understanding that it caused breast cancer and early death. I am now more curious and wanted to know, is it too late for me to start? So a couple, couple nuggets in there. I've heard you talk about how women want to age naturally and go through this process naturally. And I just chuckle every time I hear you talk about it. Well, because you, <laughs> you, once you start bringing in the analogies, right? right? You know, I think, I think a great way to shame a woman is to tell her like, well, you should do this naturally, right? Like, it, and it, like from a psychological research standpoint, there's actually something called the naturalistic fallacy. Mm -hmm. Right. This belief, and you can, you know, read about it, it's fascinating. The belief that people have that natural is better. When in fact, like arsenic is natural, 
Right. right. Like there's literally no good science behind this. It's just a belief that a lot of people have. And yeah. once you can break that down, you're like, oh, it's fascinating. That's a belief. Okay. Why do you, why do you think that that's natural? Like breaking your femur in the, in the woods is natural. Right. But, but we never be like, you know what? You should really, you should really treat this femur fracture naturally. Right. <laughs> like we never do right. that. And so it's very, it's very fascinating to be, you know, when women come in and uh, this one woman, she's like, well, I'm known amongst my friends as the natural one, right? Like people really have their identity wrapped up in what the yeah. heck this means. And then I'm like, what's on your feet? And she's like, shoes. And I'm like, oh, well, shoes aren't natural. Right. How'd you get, how'd you get here today? You drove? Well, that's not natural. Right. right? If only to, again, an electric right. toothbrush and a water pick and I floss. Mm-hmm. I use readers. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and it's really fascinating when you're like, why have women decided to suffer over this naturalistic fallacy and, and this thing like suffering means it's natural, which means it's better. Like the whole psychology behind it's fascinating, yeah. but yeah, to me, I, I can chip a hole in that natural argument, like in two seconds. So is it too late for her to jump on hormone replacement therapy when she is now past 10 years of menopause? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So you know, going back, because this question is like an entire podcast. It's so good. But yeah, um, you people used to think hot flashes were transient, temporary, and not dangerous, right? Now we know the average hot flashes will last seven to 11 years. Some women never stop hot flashing. More and more data coming out that hot flashing is a sign of cardiovascular risk, cardiovascular disease. The women who are the super flashers who like have extreme hot flashes have much higher risk of cardiovascular disease. We got to do more research. Is it a chicken and an egg, right? Is the hot flash just telling you something's wrong with the heart or does it in and of itself contribute to the heart disease? You know, that's a very interesting question, but more than likely hot flashes are not benign like we used to think they were. Like if we didn't have any treatment for them, what are you going to tell a woman to do, right? You might tell her that it's natural and it's fine. But now we have like hormone replacement therapy, now called menopause hormone therapy, um, treats hot flashes by 80%. If you're on the proper dose, your hot flashes should decrease by 80%. There is no other medication, supplement, soy, antidepressant, beta blocker, gabapentin, no other medication works as well as estrogen for hot flashes. And they're not mild inconveniences for many people. They are devastating. People drop out of the workforce because of their yeah. menopause symptoms, right? Like, well, dropping out of the workforce is natural. Like, we can't say that, you know? We want people to be functional and have functional bodies and we want them to age well. So the going back to the question of, is so if she's 11 years post last menstrual period, right? Mm-hmm. Is, it, is it air quotes too late? National guidelines, and I encourage anybody to look them up. They're free on the internet. 2022 North American Menopause Society guidelines. You can print them out, bring them to your doctor, nurse practitioner, whatever. The benefit outweighs the risk of these medications in the first 10 years. We have decreased mortality, decreased cardiovascular disease, decreased colon cancer, decreased bone fracture, all of these things, and this and more. Um, so the question is, well, okay, well now you're 10 years and a day. Have you, has the door dropped on you? Right. Yeah. Oh, it hasn't very, I think very rigid practitioners might be like, sorry, 10 years. You can't, but the guidelines don't say that the guidelines just say the risks go up and the risks of what, right. Blood clot and cardiovascular disease stroke. Mm -hmm. Why is that? The reason is, is this 
hypothesis of the healthy cell hypothesis, meaning you want to start hormones when you're as healthy as possible and when your body's recently seen them. What we know from the Women's Health Initiative is in the women, these were women specifically who had been yeah. off of hormones for like 15, 20 years, mm -hmm. gave them hormones to try to answer the question, do hormones decrease your risk of cardiovascular disease? Right. That was the, the question that the Women's Health yeah. Initiative was looking at. And what they found is in those women, they had increased risks of stroke and heart disease and Alzheimer's. So your risk goes up the longer you've been without them and then when you start them. Now, that risk of blood clot, for example, really goes up within the first six months and then plateaus. It doesn't, the risk doesn't continue to go up. And what I would tell this woman is if you're otherwise healthy, you have low cardiovascular risk, you're a, a, you know, a good weight, you haven't already had a heart attack or a stroke, you're not smoking, let's say you're, you're optimal, right? You have to be willing to accept that your risk is going to be higher than somebody who's starting at four years out. Yeah. But that risk really is within the first six to one year. And then it's going to be this year. It's not like your risk keeps getting more dangerous because now your body has estrogen. It tolerated it well. It didn't have a blood clot. You're going to be more than likely fine. And I think that what that really speaks to is women and people really want hormones to be, are hormones good or are hormones bad? Right. Right. Can you just make this black and white for me? So I just yeah. understand is 10 years before 10 years fine and 11 years is not fine of like, there are risks to any medications. I would argue the risks to very common medications that we give very frequently, thyroid medication, diabetes medication, insulin, antidepressants, yep. right? There are risks to these medications and we usually take them without so many years of like hemming and hawing over it, right? So right. yes, there are risks to taking hormones, but not for everybody. And there's certainly a lot of benefit. So it's individualized. And that's what I would say, you know, see an expert, who's willing to, you know, under, who understands basically what I said of like, it's not black and white. You got, and you got to take the human in front of you, right? Yeah. If, you, if you're a walking heart attack, you know, you probably shouldn't be started on estrogen. Right? Yeah. And that and you just brought up a really good point, finding the right physician for you. And that is really tough because you won't, you know what you know, and you don't know what you don't know. So if you so go tough. to your, if you go to your OBGYN or your primary care physician and they, and you're 55 and you're four years out and they say, well, you look great. You don't need any hormones. You're fine. You're fine. It's always, you're fine. And, you know, years go by and all of a sudden their lipid panel has changed and it becomes more high risk, like what you said. Um, what about the opposite? A woman who has gone through menopause, she's in post-menopause and she didn't get the night sweats. She didn't have the, the bringing fog. She just sort of breezed through it. And there are women who breeze through it. But when you look under the hood, they're still going through the same biochemical changes that every we're all destined to go through the same change, right? We're not stamped for one person goes in one line where you're not going to get no changes and the other person's in the other line where you're getting changes. What do you say to that woman when she says, I don't need hormone replacement therapy because I don't have any symptoms? Yeah. Fantastic question. And I mean, this clearly shows like, you know, you know, more than the average person. Cause you're able to like dig deep and because this is a fascinating question, I think. Yeah. So the United States physicians health services task force USP, it's a long thing, but basically the, the group that advises Medicare uncovering population health, right? This is the same group, by the way, for people who told us we should stop screening for prostate cancer 
So we did. And now we have severe prostate cancer, metastatic disease, like increase because we stopped screening on a, on a uh, national level. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's what they, this, that's what this group does. This group looks and says, as a population, should we provide this service? Should we, should we screen for this disease? Blah, blah, blah. Now they came out last year and they said, hormone replacement therapy should not be used as primary prevention for any medical disease. So people, that's what they said. You look it up. It's free on the internet, but people took that to say, you shouldn't just take hormones because. Right. Right. And I would say, that's not what that says. What it says is on a population level, we shouldn't just throw every 52 year old on hormones. I agree with that. They're, you know, you, as you know, one 52 year old does not, is not another 52 year old in terms of risks and health and life expectancy mm -hmm. and all that. So I agree with that. In addition, what medication do we use on a national or world level to primarily prevent any disease? None. Right. So people, it was, a, it's a very high bar to be like, should we put the nation on something to prevent a disease? No, nothing holds up. Aspirin mm -hmm. doesn't hold up. Lipitor doesn't hold up. We mm -hmm. do, we do nothing. Right. So for them to be like, don't use this as primary prevention is like, well, yeah, that and every other medication. Right. So that's interesting. Now you take the woman that you gave and, and the question is, how do you want to age? Right. And I love asking right. people that, like, what, what do you want to be doing when you're 74? Yeah. Right. Which gets people <clears throat> thinking like, well, I kind of would still like to be on those blue runs on the ski hill. That might be nice. You know, I want to be walking around. I want to maybe be getting on and off the floor with some grandkids. Uh, I wanna, certainly want to be, want to be working out. I'd love to still be using all of my brain, you know, and you start getting that person to think about aging because we don't, we don't go around thinking about us as a 74 year old. Right. But the question is, I know that estrogen is FDA approved for the prevention of osteoporosis. Mm. FDA approved <clears throat> indicates you can take it for that, mm -hmm. right? And, and the question is, should she take those things to decrease her risk of osteoporosis, likely decrease her risk of most neurodegenerative diseases, including Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, yeah. Alzheimer's, because she can't change, she can't start taking that medication once she gets osteoporosis, once she gets Alzheimer's. Estrogen doesn't work for treatment, right? And it doesn't mm. prevent, and it, the other thing about it is it doesn't prevent it in everybody. We put everybody on estrogen. Some people are still going to get osteoporosis and Alzheimer's, but at a much lower risk. And so again, I think it's individualized. I think you have to find the right doctor, which is a whole podcast in and of itself of why Western medicine is so good yep. at breaking the, the broken bone, cutting out the tumor, getting the baby out of the pelvis that's too small, right? Western medicine's very, very good yeah. at acute healthcare. There's a problem, let's fix it. Western medicine's very bad at preventative good health long-term, right? So- yeah. You have to find the right person. Well, here's one. Here's here's something. A lot of women I I work with, their mothers are still alive. So we're all, you know, in somewhere between 40 and 55, 60 years old, and we have aging mothers who most likely have never been on hormone replacement therapy. And I asked them, well, what's, what's it like being with your mom? Oh my gosh, I can't even travel with her anymore. She takes so much work. She can't walk. She can't, you know, she doesn't remember anything. She eats so bad. She's not sleeping. She's all these adverse consequences. And I say, well, genetically you're in line to age like her. If you do nothing, yep. right. Just because of mere genetics, right. 
So you have to look at that. Is that your vision? Is that your long-term longevity goal? And yeah. then that gets them really thinking. Totally. And, and the role, and I, I don't think we talk about it enough, is the role of frailty yeah. on quality of life, right? And the role of muscle mass and the yeah. role of exercise and all of this stuff. And it's like, we are seeing what years and years of frailty looks like. And we're like, that's not actually a great quality of life. I talk about sarcopenia all the time, all the time. I am all about stop getting on the treadmill. It's not a bad thing, but start lifting some weights, start small, start somewhere. But yeah, I, totally. I have friends and they're like, how can I get you the arms that you have? And I'm like, you lift heavy things. You right. put them down a lot of times. Yeah. And it does it totally. And then you lift them again and right. then you put them down. Right. <laughs> And you do that about four times a week, not once or twice, you four or five, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and it has to be hard. Yes. Right. But yeah, the role of, that's the other thing about Western healthcare, right? Who's in charge of the muscles? There's yeah. literally no specialist in charge. And the role of muscles in insulin resistance as a glucose sink, as a, as balance, right? Helping you with your balance, protecting yeah. your bones, like muscles are the organ of longevity. And it's like, you, you have to maintain them because otherwise, you know, gravity, lack of hormones, right. we, don't, we don't have good data. I'll be the first to say we need more. We do not have good data on hormone replacement therapy, whether it's estrogen or testosterone and preservation of yeah. muscle mass, mm -hmm. um, we have great bone health data, right? We got testosterone and estrogen, great bone health data. We don't have great muscle maintenance data. I think it's there to be found. I think we just don't study it very much, but there is some, when the women's health initiative came out in 2002, about depending upon who you quote 40 to 70% of women in this country were immediately taken off their hormones. These are the boomers, right? right. This is, this is who it affected, which means a niche subspecialty of the women had a great provider who was willing to go against the grain, kept them on their hormones. These women said, over my dead body, will I stop these hormones? So now these women are, they're 84 years old, right? Ish. I see them in my clinic. They're coming in. They've got their, they're like, got their tennis shoes on. They're bouncing up and down. They don't have a cane. Like they look, it's a good trendy way to say it, but like, well, they're well-preserved, right? Like mm -hmm. they're functional. And I'm right. to the point now where I'm like, I can, almost tell you who's on hormones and who's not when they come in and they start talking to me. Like I can tell that if you're coming in super, super frail, you're not on hormones. Absolutely. And it, that sounds very black and white. And of course it's more complicated than that. But the point is we do have some women who didn't stop hormones and we, we should be studying them, you know, absolutely. they've been on them. Yeah. I, I digress. Sorry. Oh no, no, this is, I'll have to have you come back for a whole nother podcast on just hormones, because it's something that I cover a lot, but even though I cover it so much, I still have to talk about it. It nauseam to my clients because they come with a story that just is based on, um, wrong information. It's not current science that they're, it's more emotional for them when you really think about it. Yeah. People yeah. ask me, I mean, they basically people tell me all the time in clinic, like, well, you know, because hormones cause cancer. Yeah. Or this, and I'm like, oh, really? Where did you learn that? And they can't tell me, they're not quoting me. So they can't even tell me women's health initiative, which has been completely debunked. But right? the interesting but thing is women are dying more of cardiovascular disease than they are of cancer. Starting at age 25, starting at age 25, cardiovascular yeah. disease kills more than breast cancer. Yeah. Yeah. And same, same with Alzheimer's, right? Alzheimer's, like 
And I think that's been a very interesting thing because women actually really do care about their brains. I, I don't know. I don't know why people don't care about cardiovascular disease. It's the number one killer of, you know, all people. But when you start talking about a woman's brain and you say two thirds of all diagnoses of Alzheimer's are in women, and it's not just because women are living longer. Right. And 70% of caretakers for people who have Alzheimer's are women. Right. So it's yeah. like the burden of Alzheimer's disease. And again, it's the healthy cell hypothesis. You can't start a woman at 70 to prevent Alzheimer's. Right. They actually right. have an increased risk of Alzheimer's when you throw them on estrogen late. It's really the young that, that we have the data on. Um, Moscone wrote the XX brain. She's mm, a, mm-hmm. a researcher, uh, you know, does kind of big, big Alzheimer's, but it's like women care about their brains. That, that be thing worth, worth thinking about. Especially divorced women. <laughs> Because we have a whole nother half of our lives to live. <laughs> we want to be honest. <laughs> yeah, totally. Right? Yeah. totally. I have one more question about this topic before we pivot to another question. Um, what is if a question, what's one of the best questions a woman can ask their OBGYN or their PCP about menopause and HRT if they're coming from a space of knowing nothing? The doctor knows nothing or the patient knows nothing? the patient. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The patient, but what's a good well, question yeah. for that patient to go in and ask and, and then also know this isn't my doctor. I need to go somewhere else. Yeah. Well, I mean, my advice would be like, get, get your education from reputable sources before you go into that doctor. Yeah, for sure. You, can, you can't go in, not prepared, right? You've got a 10 minute visit. You got to, you know, like, and to me, I'm like, eh, tell me about your opinion on hormones is it's like too big. Right. Yeah. For, for that time, especially if you're getting in with somebody who thinks, you know, ha- isn't updated on the, the new data with it. So I'd be like, get your education. You know, Heather Hirsch has an amazing podcast. You can go to the menopause.org website. You can listen to your podcast, my podcast, whatever. Read Estrogen Matters by Avram Blooming and yeah. Carol Tavers. Like so many good ways to like, and if you do all of that, you're going to know more than the majority of people. Yeah. It really does set you apart to, to be able to challenge all the myths that are out there. Um, I, my pro tip for going into whoever you're going into to try to get on hormones is to say, can I just try it for three months? And I promise I'll come back and we'll stop it if it's horrible or we'll adjust it. Can Mm -hmm. I just try it? Mm, I like that. Right. That is a powerhouse move because most doctors are going to be like, yeah, let's just try it. You promise you're going to follow up. You're going to let me know how you're going to do. Yeah. Let's just try it. We'll learn together. And you can come back in three months and be like, I'm sleeping better. My mood's better, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and really say, Hey, these are really helping my quality of life. And if somebody says, no, you can't have hormones. I would ask why understand the why, like, because you've had two blood clots and you smoke cigarettes, like that's a legit reason why you probably shouldn't be on hormones. Right. So it's really understanding the why to the no. I, what I see a lot of, cause this is still another myth is, um, you have to be on hormones for the lowest dose for the shortest period of time possible. So mm-hmm. I get tons of women, yeah. they're, they're 62, they're 70, whatever. And they're, they were just stopped. Their hormones were just stopped. Yeah. And I say, well, why? And they don't know why. And I'm like, you need to ask why understand why it was stopped because the, the reason of you're too old is no longer a valid reason. Again, 2022 Mm-mm. North American menopause guidelines. And I'm like, do you think it's any coincidence that you're in my office six months after you stopped your hormones? Do you think mm-hmm. that's a coincidence? Mm-hmm. And they're Good like, point. they're like, oh, this did start after I stopped my hormones. 
because genital urinary syndrome of menopause, which is a mouthful, is highly, a highly, highly common condition, the years going on past menopause. And it's very devastating to your quality of life. Urgency, frequency, pain with sex, urinary tract infections, you know, prolapse, all this stuff. So I'm like, it's not a coincidence you're seeing me after somebody just stopped your hormones and didn't tell you why. And you, in most cases, you can go back on your hormones. So that's good. That's a good segue into another question. What is the best way to treat prolapse and what exactly is prolapse and why does this occur? Good question. So our vaginas face the ground. We have gravity on the earth and we have to put very big headed babies through it. Right. So, and then, you know, chronic straining, constipation, chronic cough, you know, a a weak core. So when you lift, you're always pushing out through Mm -hmm. the bottom of your pelvis, a weak pelvic floor, uh, dropping hormones. All of these things can cause prolapse. Prolapse is basically a female hernia. The the colloquial way of talking about it is my bladder has dropped or my bladder is falling out. That's it, that drives me nuts as a urologist because the bladder is like my favorite organ and it's not the bladder's fault. And the bladder's not like get me out of here, mm-hmm. right? It's not right. is right. not trying to leave your body. What's happening is the wall of the vagina is lax. The ligaments are torn. So the the wall of the vagina kind of like a, a tube sock being turned inside out, right? So Mm -hmm. the wall is coming out behind that wall on the anterior side is the bladder. So that's why, you know, even a lot of doctors will tell women, oh, your bladder's falling out. And women are like, what the hell? Like, is it just going to bounce across the floor? Right. They don't understand. Like, it's just a laxity of the vaginal wall. If it doesn't bother you. So about, I haven't looked at the statistic in a while, but about 60% of women after a vaginal delivery will have at least a stage two prolapse. That's if you just take all those women put them in stirrups and do an exam. That does not mean that they're symptomatic whatsoever. Lots of us have laxity, you know, we have a little laxity as we age and things, but it doesn't bother us, right? So really if prolapse bothers you, I feel a bulge. I feel like I'm sitting on a tennis ball. I feel like I can't Mm. empty my bladder all the way. I feel something, feel something heavy with a bulge, right? Certainly you can feel pelvic heaviness and not have prolapse. So really I reserve surgery to symptomatic stage three or four. So it's, it's coming out to the entrance of the vagina or farther prolapse physical therapy plus or minus a pessary can help many, 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 you know, lower grade prolapses become asymptomatic, strengthen your pelvic floor, lift things up a little bit, get you more functional in the bathroom department. And they're like, yeah, nothing bothers me. So women will come to see me and they'll be like, I'm here to fix a, a prolapse. And I'm like, how does it bother you? And they're like, well, it doesn't bother me. My doctor just told me I had it on when I got a pap smear or something. Mm. It's very similar to a man's hernia. Like many, many, many people have inguinal hernias. It doesn't bother them whatsoever. Don't go get surgery for it. It's, it's not necessary. So if it's not in stage three or four, what do you do to help support the prolapse? Pelvic floor physical therapy. Oh, oh okay. Got it. Okay. Yep. I have a really funny story about this. It's a little bit related. I've had five children, all vaginal births. After my second one, within a week, I felt like my bladder was coming out. I felt like there was something was definitely headed out the door. And I went back to my OBGYN and she said, oh, whoops, I left in some, um, whatever surgical tissue or something to sop up the blood. She said, I, I forgot, Jill, I didn't pull it all out. Sorry, here, here you go. I was like, I've been panicking for a week. <laughs> So then the other three babies I had, I was like, you know, Sue, can you just take like another trip around in there and just make sure everything's gone? Yeah. 
It's so good no. that your, your prolapse was completely removable. Totally. Right. Oh <laughs> God. Awesome. Yeah. I always tell people, you know, when they come in with prolapse, I'm like, I'm like, how many kids, blah, blah, three. Okay. Uh-huh. I'm like, blame the kid with the biggest head. And they always know who that kid is. My number four. Yeah. Yeah. They always see They always yeah. they're like, that was Steven. He was the middle child. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like they always know. And it, yep. it's, it's like, you know, you, we put big heads through tight spaces. Yep. Yep. Another great segue into this question. So this woman says, I am getting divorced after 25 years of marriage. I'm both excited and worried about having sex with a new partner. I don't love the way my vagina looks anymore. And I feel stretched out from having babies. What can I do to help my self-esteem and, or update my vagina's appearance for the next phase of my life? Love this question. Do you think your partner cares about how your vagina looks? But does that matter? It doesn't, it really just matter what you think about your vagina. But she's worried about what other people think about it. And she's worried what she thinks about it. So I'd say both. Number one, they they don't care. Penises don't have eyes, right? (laughs) So again, I was assuming heterosexual. I apologize. But most, most partners don't care. They love that yeah. you want to be with them. It's a wonderful thing. We, we're, we overly come. So many people are like, I don't want to go out there because what if it's bad? And it's like, but what mm. if it's good? Right. 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 You're limiting your whole, the whole, your whole life to what if it's bad of like, maybe give equal airtime to what if it's amazing. Right. right. So I, I would work the role of body image on sexual function, uh, on sexual satisfaction is absolutely huge. I think it's a perfect opportunity to be like, why are you so harsh about your body? Right? Why do you wish your body was different? There's a, you know, billion dollar industry on us changing our bodies because nobody wants to have the conversation of like, why, where's our self-acceptance? I love the book. I don't know if you've read the book, The Body is Not an Apology. Mm -hmm. Sonia Renee Taylor. The first book I read where it's like, everybody's trying to get to neutral. Everybody's trying to get to like acceptance. And she's like, go radical self-love on this. Go like this body created life. Are you kidding me? This body got me past age 50. Are you nuts? This is exceptional. Right. And it's so radical to even hear that. Yeah. Because we're just trying to get to neutral all the time. Like, well, just get to acceptance. It's like, why don't you try for radical self-love? And like the amazing things your body, if it wasn't for your body, you'd be six feet under. Thank God for this, you know, wiggly, hormonal, temperamental, bad dental health body, whatever. But, <laughs> but I would say, you know, and that's what's so cool about sex is like the amazing opportunity for personal growth. Right. And so I'd say for this woman, her worry is a, what do I think about myself? B, what do other people think of myself? Mm-hmm. Like, that actually has nothing to do with sex right? We can work, we can work on all that and make that absolutely fabulous and then go have some fun. But it is legit. I mean, I've had five babies come down my vaginal canal. I mean, it's legit. You get stretched out. It doesn't go back to where it completely was. I've had to do certain things to my va- my vagina to um, optimize my sexual experience. You know, I've done the Viviv treatments. Um, I usually do one a year. I've done those the last three years. I haven't done one this year because I feel pretty good, but what do you think about all of these non-surgical options out there? The Femi lift, and then there's the Femi wave, you know, where does expensive, that- expensive ways to empty your wallet. Um, I know I, I, in, in all seriousness, I think there's a role, mm-hmm. right. But we're missing. So, I mean, there's so much depth here, right? Why do you think that putting something in your vagina is all there is to sexuality? 
Why do you think your vagina has to be a certain level of tightness in order for sex to be good? Like there's just so much darn personal growth here. And to be like, well, you could spend $3,000 on a laser or you could do pelvic floor physical therapy, some vaginal estrogen, get the collagen back that way, get the muscle strength back that way. Really? Yeah. And it's, it goes back to the O shot of like, what's your goal with the laser? And it is, and I do, I do the laser. I think there's a role for laser, but it's a tool. And if women are like, I want to do the laser to increase my desire or to increase my orgasms or to blah, 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 blah. And to realize laser can't do all of that. Let's get, no, really, no, just the physical. Really clear. Yeah. We're mm -hmm. just talking about physical, the, the yep. anatomy. Yep. But yeah, I, I would, I get very, you know, I just think the lack of education on like, why is penetrative sex with a tight vagina, the gold standard, right? Right. It doesn't, it, it doesn't have to be. And so I really love turning the mirror on, on these women to be like, you're missing a whole entire world because you're focusing on something that you think is broken and to realize like, it's so much bigger and greater than that. No, there's people with stage three, people with stage three prolapse who have, who have amazing sex. Mm. Right. Yep. So all this, like, oh, it's got to be a certain tightness and it's got to be a certain ball. It's like, no, it doesn't. It, you know, if you have expendable income and you want to, God bless you, go enhance your body however you want to. But do you need to after a certain age? No, you don't need to. But if someone chose to, do you think that there's any efficacy behind any of these non-surgical treatments? For what goal? For... um. Well, tightening up the vaginal walls, restoring the vaginal walls so that they're more su supple and have more collagen, you know, stimulated. Vaginal, um, vaginal estrogen gives you collagen. Right, right. But there's people out there who aren't going to take vaginal estrogen. Why not? They're going to spend $3,000 on a right. laser every year? Well, because it's estrogen. So it's, you know, it's the taboo word. Does right. estrogen, does vaginal estrogen, and the reason I'm asking you this is because- No, I get it. Right like, right. this is like, understand how much we don't know. Right. And how much that limits us. So, you know, just for your listeners, vaginal estrogen does not increase your risk of any sort of cancer. Right. Breast cancer survivors can be on vaginal estrogen. Always yes. run it by your oncologist. Yeah. But yeah, if you're like, hey, my goal is more collagen. Great. Are you eating protein and taking vaginal estrogen? No. That's a hell of a lot cheaper than a $3,000 laser every year. Yeah. Right. But right. the laser, the people selling the lasers are like, this is what you need to, to be. What the hell is vaginal rejuvenation? What the hell does that mean? It does. It's not actually defined, but that's how it's marketed because they can't yes. actually make medical claims on something that's not FDA approved. Right. So that's why you do it. But when you ask women like, what is vaginal rejuvenation? Why is it important? They're like, I don't know. It's like, well, because it doesn't actually mean anything. Yeah. Now, increasing your body confidence, your body image, certainly treating any sort of bladder leakage, treating any certain pain, incredibly important. And I don't want to downplay that. But what I'm trying to, to demonstrate is the amazing depth of understanding sexuality in our body that once we have, man, empowerment just comes from that. You know, you make a really good point. I, you know, I'm here to work on lifestyle interventions with my clients, right? I work on, is your protein intake optimized? Are you exercising? Are you managing your stress? Are you getting that optimal sleep? Because that's the first stop right? You got to nail those. You got to have this healthy foundation and then start building on top of it. And then I love that you're keep coming, you keep circling back to the importance of replacing estrogen, right? Well, and asking the big questions and making women really think about that bigger vision. What's the goal? I really love that. I love that you, you keep circling back to that. 
but then there's well, always yeah part of it's my personality of like right. i i need you to think women yeah for sure like, because when because when you get a woman who thinks she's got agency and she's got empowerment mm. and she's got autonomy over her body right instead of being like well the internet told me to buy this supplement and to do this laser and to blah 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 and like that they just told me to so i did it's like that is a disempowered human and uh and I know, I know women don't actually want to live that way. What about screen cream? What are your thoughts on screen cream and, and break down what screen yeah. cream is so for those who cream, don't know. Some people like that term and some people don't like that term, but screen yeah. cream, <laughs> screen cream is a compounded uh, prescription medication commonly has sildenafil, which is generic Viagra. They might put in some tingly stuff like mint or menthol um, arginine, which is a vasodilator, theophylline. It depends upon who, you know, who makes it. And so it's not like, it's not proprietary, but you're going to get different things in it depending upon where, where you go. Um, basically what it does is it brings awareness. So it's a cream. You can put it in the vagina on the vulva periclitoral, you know, basically you put it there and you can wait for a while, or you can warm up yourself with a massager or whatever you want to do. It brings in blood flow and the tingliness really brings in an awareness right? And so what we need to have great sex is we have to have, we need to have good blood flow. We need to have arousal. We need to have present moment being in our body, being in the, being in the now, not being in the like, what's for dinner and right. I should have done this and the right. dishes and blah, blah, blah. Right. So I love it as a tool to kind of refocus, to be like, and we're going to go there now. We're going to be down there. We're going to be in our body. We're going to feel the mm -hmm. labia, we're gonna feel the vagina. We're going to feel the clitoris. So it's a fun tool. You know, it's, it's not that expensive. Um, do I think it cures all sexual dysfunction? No, but do I, again, you want to understand what does it do? How's it going to help? What's it for? Um, certainly it's, it's incredibly safe. It's not going to hurt anybody. Do I think like somebody's sexual issue is their lack of scream cream in their life? No, but you know, it can be fun and it can bring in blood flow and arousal and, you know, throw it. In. The other fun thing about it is it'll usually say like apply and then wait 30 minutes. Right. So if you're like hanging out in bed by yourself after you've applied and you're just like thinking about sex and maybe you've got mm -hmm. a vibrator and you know, whatever, it's right. like, that is good for your sex life, no matter what. Right. Totally. You, know, you don't need scream cream for that. Right. There's this, there was this lube, I think it was a CBD lube and the instructions were like apply and rub for 15 to 30 minutes in a counterclockwise mm -hmm. direction. And I'm like, yeah, like that lube's going to work, you know, like totally, any, right. coconut oil is going to work doing that. So again, it's, you know, are we actually missing, are you missing, missing arginine in your pelvis? And like, probably not, but like, right. you know, it's, it's fun. It's cheap. Like give it a go. Yeah. This is a good question. Why do I get constipated after having sex and what can I do about that? Mm. I don't know. I would see a pelvic floor, mm. pelvic floor person, you know, is there, is there a muscle spasm afterwards? What is it? They'll, they'll, they'll dig that. I wouldn't say that's a super common finding. So mm -hmm. for, for me, I'd be like, I got to get my pelvic floor PTs on that. They'd, they'd mm -hmm. be all about that. They'd be like, track your poops, track your pee, track your water. Eat mm. some, how's your fiber? You know, yeah. are you having sex on the weekends? Is your diet changed on the weekends? You know, like what else is going on? Right. So I, I would, they would be all over that problem. Okay. Um, Oh, here's a good one. What do you do if you and your partner are on different arousal schedules? One prefers sex at night and one prefers sex in the AM. Have it at noon. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm joking. I mean, you, you know, you kind of like meet in the middle of like, it's great to understand that. 
about each other, right? Like I, I need to be awake and have energy and my testosterone might be higher in the morning. Mm-hmm. Right? Might be good reasons. And so people love the night because all the chores are done and it's, you can right. focus on you time and, the, and it's kind of quiet in the world and just understanding that and realizing that it's, it, this is not a problem. Like most people have, de- most couples have desired discrepancy. Like that is, we need to normalize that because so many people are like, I have this problem. If only I was perfectly matched. Well, it's like, well, we don't marry ourselves, right? Like we are, we are by definition with other humans who have their own needs and wants. Right. And so it's like, talk about it, switch it up. Maybe on Saturdays, it's a morning time. Maybe on Thursdays, it's it's in the evening of like, nobody has to win. Right. Mm. And it feels like that for so many people especially yeah. for the men. Yeah. 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 So uh, if we, if we want to just marry ourselves, marry yourself, you can have right. sex up whenever you want, but until we do that, we have to deal with somebody who is different. And that doesn't mean that they're wrong. They're just yeah. different. All right. One last question before we wrap up, why are some people prone to honeymoon cystitis or UTIs when they haven't had sex for a while and are now in a relationship? Yeah. Oh, you're changing your microbiome, right? Um, you're, you're doing more activity down the there, vaginal, which, my, you're talking about the vaginal microbiome. Yeah. And which a lot of women don't know we have one down there. Well, we, we yeah, yeah, we've got bacteria on our skin and our mouth and our butt, you know, all the things. So of course, of course we have a microbiome in our vagina, which, and it's actually very important by the way, because it changes after menopause, it becomes less acidic because with estrogen, it feeds the lactobacillus, which we love. And, um, when it becomes less acidic, it's more prone to being colonized by E. coli. And that's why postmenopausal women will get more urinary tract infections. You know, it mm-hmm. treats that vaginal estrogen. But um, so I'd say micro- <laughs> it can disrupt your microbiome, you know, just a new partner, new things down there. You're messing with, with a bunch of fluids that you weren't before. You know, there's just a lot more attention down there. Um, drink more water, <laughs> urinate regularly. A lot of times, you know, it, it will get better as your body just adjusts um, vaginal estrogen if you're perimenopause or postmenopause to normalize your microbiome as much as you can. Um, there's not a lot of great data. Like there's some some data on D-mannose and a high quality cranberry supplement. Mm-hmm. Some of my women take a D-mannose pill before sex. Um, so there's a lot, you know, it's not a one one-stop shop for everybody, but it usually gets better. Is urethral dilation still a way for women to avoid getting UTIs? Is that no. still a thing? Old school. I have a funny story about that though. I have an older, an older surgeon, long since retired. And he came to see me and he's like, you know what we used to do? We used to just dilate all the women's urethras for incontinence and urinary tract infections. And it worked so great. They never came back. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I'll tell you why they never came back. Hurt like hell. Uh huh. Here, here he is thinking it worked great. That's why they didn't come back. Mm-hmm. Uh, it kind of fell out of favor. You know, it was a, it was a thing we did probably because we didn't we didn't know vaginal estrogen was so important and pelvic floor physical therapy was so important. Yeah. Um. You know, I still do it every once in a while, but it's usually for legitimate urethral narrowing. Um. But yeah, it used to be just a oh, well, you just need this dilated. And so many adult women, they're like, I had my urethra dilated when I was ten, and like they're completely medical traumatized by it. And so, yeah, it was very, very common. It's, it's very uncommon now. Thank goodness. What about douching down there? Don't do it. 
And tell us why, because a lot of women like their vaginas to smell a certain way. And what I tell them is if you ate well and you took care of yourself, your vagina is going to smell wonderful. And if they use vaginal estrogen, if they're postmenopausal, because they're <laughs> going to change the acidity, um, douching causes harm. And it's an end of year, but you're spending your money on crap, right? There's an incredible, incredible amount of money made in this country, but for the purity culture of our body shouldn't smell, our body shouldn't discharge. You should, yeah. your, your vagina should smell like tulips, you know, all this stuff. And, one, and again, I'm a, I'm a broken record. Once we give women the education to be like, mm -hmm. you are being marketed to, mm -hmm. are being marketed to, and they're taking your money to the bank, they're coming for you, right? And vaginas are musky. Vaginas have smells. It is natural. As long as it's not itchy or foul or new sudden onset, that's yeah. your body, especially if you wax or shave, right? Yeah. Because the hair down there is a natural trapper of the vaginal discharge, right? So women who shave and don't have hair, they'll notice a lot more discharge. They'll think it's a problem. And it's like, mm -hmm. well, you got rid of the natural thing that, you know, catches all that stuff. Um, so yeah, I have lots of thoughts on women buying, like, why are you buying into the purity culture that vaginas shouldn't, shouldn't be vaginas? Vaginas yeah. are self-cleaning organs. Most of the time we can just leave them alone. Yeah. Well, Dr. Casperson, it was so much fun to have my first Ask Me Anything episode with you. I'm definitely going to have to come have you come back onto the podcast and dive deep in some of these topics because they're just fascinating and women just don't know and they don't get to ask these questions to their doctors in the seven minutes that they see them and get the proper answers or an answer at all. Yeah. Well, I thank you for doing your part in educating women and, and really like what you're doing as far as the basics, like yes. the basics is, is 80% of it, right? It's like eating right, exercising, getting good sleep, all the stress yeah. and education is so empowering to be like, you don't actually have to do all this crap to your body. A yeah. little bit of education does, goes a long way. Yeah. Part of the way I work with my clients and I only work one-on-one -on -one, is that I want them to be with a very good OBGYN, PCP, or a functional medicine doctor who's really savvy on hormones because that's one of the buckets. You know, it's the lifestyle intervention. And one of the buckets is the medical intervention. And there is a medical intervention here that's really important. Um, and so I do help educate them on going in with the lab list and understanding why they're asking for specific labs, understanding, you know, the education behind hormones. So they not so they can go in and say, ha, I know this and you don't, but just so that they know, okay, I'm either going to continue on with this person as my medical doctor, or I'm going to pivot into a different direction and, and have somebody else help me. But I love they, it. Yeah. So, Empowerment. Um, so yeah. Good. Yeah. So thank you so much again and tell everyone where they can find you and follow you. And when's the TEDx um, coming out? Yeah. TEDx will be out in a couple of weeks, hopefully Great. God willing. Um, I'm, I'm most active on Instagram, Kelly Casperson MD. And then the podcast is you are not broken. And the book is you are not broken. And I will put all of that onto the show notes as well. Awesome. So, Thanks for having yeah, me. Yeah. Thank you so much again. Totally. Thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Lifestyle changes can be hard and overwhelming to make. By building your support team of functional medicine doctors, therapists, and health coaches, you can reach your optimal health goals. Be sure to check out my other podcasts. Until we meet again, stay healthy.